quick disclaimer, the thoughts expressed by Dr. Cahill are not representative of those of ANSCA or Queensland Health. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Coffee and Gas podcast. This episode we're actually recording live from Training Conference 2023 in Leeds, uh, so apologies if you can hear any background noise. Uh, I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Ben Cahill. Ben is an anaesthetic trainee working on the Gold Coast in Australia and was previously a member of the Australia and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists Trainee Committee. He has made the journey all the way to the UK to join us here at Trainee Conference and has kindly agreed to appear on our podcast to discuss what life is like as an anaesthetics trainee in Australia. So thanks a lot, Ben, for joining us. Thanks, Alan. Um, so I think the first question is, I guess, just to get a bit about your background. I understand that you were actually born in the UK and lived in Sheffield until the age of 16. And it was at that point you emigrated to Australia. How was that move for you personally in terms of sort of going to school? Was it culturally quite a big shift? What was the sort of the big changes you found? Yeah, it was a little bit unusual in that I've done all of my training and things out there. So I uh, moved with family when I was 16 uh, to Brisbane and then finished the last two years of school there and then uh, university afterwards. And um, it was a challenging move at the time. Uh, it was a key point in your life, really. It was just post-GCSEs and had friendship groups established and things. But uh, it was it was definitely a positive move overall. It was uh, There's been a lot of benefits since then and I... I, I I, I think you know I've definitely moved home, as it were. It uh, it was a bit of a cultural shock. The Aussies um, are an interesting bunch, uh, even though <laughs> I, I consider myself yeah. true blue Aussie now. But generally, school was was welcoming, and and uh, and I had a good time for the last mm. two years. Good to hear. Um, I've noticed you picked up the accent slightly as well. <laughs> a little bit. It's yeah. a strange blend of yeah. uh, of a bit of Sheffield mm. and a bit of Australian now. Yeah. So. Moving to Australia is obviously becoming increasingly popular for UK doctors, whether temporarily or, or permanently. But I think a lot of us are slightly confused as to how training works out there, how, you know, what life after medical school is like. Would you be able to just briefly outline your training as an anaesthetist? in terms of how it works after medical school, for example. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I guess I should first say that um, so Australia has a public healthcare system, mm-hmm. uh, which we call Medicare, uh, but the health, uh, health systems are state-based. So I'm in Queensland and work for Queensland Health, um, and they run all the hospitals uh, and healthcare in Queensland. So in terms of what training I've done and what, what a general structure might be, um, I'd say I think most people go and do an undergraduate degree at university yeah. first and then postgraduate medicine, so three years and then four years. Uh, but there are some undergraduate uh, medicine courses in Australia as well. Once you graduate from university, then you uh, your F1 and F2 stage is just one year and that's called internship Uh, so you do one year of internship and then you do a few normally a few resident years so it has different names in different states but it's in Queensland it's uh, you move from internship to be a junior house officer for a year and then you might go on in your third year to be a senior house officer and they're generally rotational jobs where you might move between different specialties for 10 to 12 weeks at a time um, and you get a taste of different um, what different specialties are like but there are also service provision jobs like emergency and um, general medicine and general surgery and things and then during that time you're trying to as you do here uh, sort of build your cv and portfolio and things you might try and get a principal house officer job and so that is essentially a registrar level job but you're just not on a training pathway yet 
And so you spend an entire year in, say, uh, usually ICU uh, or ED or maybe a medical specialty or something. But for anesthetics training, most people, I would say, do an ICU year as a PHO. And then you apply if you want to do anesthetics. Uh, it's the Australian New Zealand College of Anesthetists um, do the training for anesthetists in Australia. And the College of Intensive Care Medicine is a completely separate college that do a completely separate training program for ICU. Mm -hmm. You can also dual train and combine the two. But uh, for anaesthetics, you would then apply to um, the anaesthetics training program in Queensland, which is centralised. Um, there's an interview and it's, it's pretty competitive to get on. Uh, but then once you are on, then you're on for a five-year minimum mm -hmm. full training period. Um, and they will uh, allocate you to an area of Queensland, so either the sort of southeast or up north or somewhere, and you stay in the hospitals around that area. And I guess in terms of the structure of the training program, it's um, there's a six-month period where you're an introductory trainee, and uh, you can't that's just the initial basics and you can't do anything independently. Uh, then you sit an initial assessment of anaesthetic competency exam uh, and then you move into basic training for 18 months and then you need to pass the primary exam at the end of that and then once you've finished that and you've finished all the other components you move into advanced training and then that's two years as well uh, and then you do a provisional fellowship year uh, sorry you complete your fellowship exam at the end of advanced training and then there's a provisional fellowship year and then you finish so five years in total okay so it's actually interesting to hear a lot of uh, the comparisons and similarities of uk training um so obviously we have f1 f2 which i guess can be seen sort of similar to sort of your so your it's just our internship, yeah, internship yeah. years yeah um and then it's becoming increasingly common as well uh, I mean, in the UK, we call it an F-free year, or it's right. actually a year out after or F2. We're not officially in training, but a lot of people will, for example, do a, a clinical fellow sort of service provision job in ICU to get some experience, build their portfolio yep. before applying to anaesthetics, um, because right. it is also becoming increasingly competitive. The, the competition ratios here to get into anaesthetics training is about, I'd say, for every place available, it's five applicants sort of competing for that place. Can I just ask what the, do you, do you know, do they release the figures in Australia of a competition ratio similar, uh, better? I don't think person? they actually release the yeah. figures. I would say to get into the Queensland rotational training scheme, it's competitive, mm. but I wouldn't say that it's five to one. I'd say yeah. maybe two to three to one place. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So usually most people, if they're keen and start building up their CV, uh, if they don't get in one year, if they try again the next year, they should usually get sure. in, or the year after that okay. they would get in, yeah, I would expect, unless it was something else mm. wrong. And if they put a limit on how many times you can apply, or can you just sort of keep trying? Um, to my knowledge, no, not at the moment. Um, there are limits to the number of times you can sit exams, yep. um, and if you fail the exam in that number of limited times, mm -hmm. then you are removed from the training, uh, rotational training okay. scheme. Yeah, yep. yeah. 
So a lot of comparisons are being made between sort of the UK and Australia with regards to working conditions, pays, hours, obviously a very topical issue for us at the moment, considering there's a doctor's strikes mm. happening. I think a lot of people would be very keen to hear, for example, what your rotor is like in terms of what, how many hours a week you work on average or what, what you're, you're on call and nights and weekend frequencies yeah would you be able to sort of go through that yeah sure yeah yeah yeah. um so again uh it does it can obviously vary between hospitals and it can vary at whether you're at different levels so an introductory trainee doesn't do any night shifts they don't really do any on calls or anything uh, uh, there's there's not too much of that um, but say for a basic trainee or an early advanced trainee at my hospital you do a 10-hour shift so you do four uh, 10 hour shifts a week so it's sort of rostered 38 to 40 hours a week and I would say that night shifts you would do either three or four in a row uh, and you'd expect to do nights maybe once a, one week in six to eight I'd, I'd say you might then also do in addition to nights you might do an on-call shift um, after a daytime shift you might be on call overnight at a smaller hospital um, and you might do that once every three to four weeks okay. so weekends you probably get maybe once every three to four weeks as well um so it, it can be arduous at yeah. times it can be it can be a significant on-call component yeah and, and how long exactly are sort of the night shifts and weekend shifts in terms of how many is it sort of 12 13 hours or is yeah it sort of um varies some of the weekend shifts are 12 hours some of the most of the night shifts are 10 hours some of them are, are 12 hours on the mm-hmm. weekend um, but you would never, uh, well, at my hospital, you you wouldn't be rostered over your, um, say, 40-hour contract. Um, so you wouldn't be, there isn't any rostered overtime um, built in. And is is it an average of 40 hours or is it a set rule that in one week you can never go above 40 hours? It's, it's, yeah. it's technically 38 hours okay. um, is the legislated maximum mm-hmm. rostered because it's nine and a half hours sure. per day because you include like a half an hour lunch break mm-hmm. for a t- in a 10 hour shift yeah okay so that's it that's interesting because obviously for us uh, our contract states it's 40 hours but it can legally go up to 48 hours but that's on an average basis yeah so the maximum we're actually allowed per week is uh, I believe it's 76 hours, I might be wrong, but it's definitely around the 70 hour mark. But as long as the average across your contract works out to four, uh, in the 40s, that's fine. So a lot of the time we have very, very sort of hectic weeks where, you know, we might do uh, a Monday to Thursday on call and then work the weekend as well. Uh, but it's interesting to hear that you sort of never go above 38 hours a week, is that... It, it can happen, yeah. um, and I know that there yeah. are there are other hospitals <clears throat> that work on a five-day-a-week okay. roster yeah. um, with a shorter shift each day, but then it sounds like often they stay either side of that shift. Yeah. But it's it, there's, a, there's been a big push in Australia in the last few years to always claim overtime okay. and, and always yeah. have it paid as overtime, sure. so it would be paid at the overtime rate and what is the overtime rate <laughs> uh yeah it's um very state to state um but uh it's in, in queensland it's uh 1.5 times uh, the base rate mm. for the first oh i think it's two hours and then it goes to double time okay. after that yeah i think there's a lot of people listening who would who have a lot to say about how that <laughs> compares to the uk yeah and i'm sure 
the question that everyone's mind on everyone's mind is how exactly your pay compares to us. And you, would you be able, do you mind discussing that? Or yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's that's yeah. fine. As a say, as a registrar in yeah. anaesthetics, um, in again, it varies state to state slightly. But in Queensland, your sort of base. Um, your base salary is is between one hundred and ten to one hundred and thirty thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, Aussie dollars. Yeah. But you're with over with sort of any overtime or evenings and then night shifts and then weekends. I think you can generally expect to gross one say just roughly one fifty to one seventy um, in 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 total. Okay, I won't say too much about that apart from one pound is equal roughly to two Australian dollars so listeners can do the maths and compare it to their own salary (laughs) so moving swiftly on from that topic uh, and we uh, I mean we're wondering why we're going on strike but I won't talk too much about that you guys definitely deserve (laughs) deserve more I think yeah so in terms of sort of making some more comparisons in terms of what your training is like compared Mm. to ours I think one of the main complaints we have in UK is sort of what we call rotational training uh, and what I mean by that is we often move hospitals every six to 12 months, which obviously can be very difficult on our personal lives, particularly uh, people with families. Obviously, the UK is a, a much smaller country than the Australia, and we still have that issue. Um, considering how large Australia is, do you, still, do you have similar issues of rotating like that? We do, and, and it, um, it does have a significant impact on, on um, your personal life and, and families. Uh, they, I, I do think they try to um, minimise the amount you need to travel, but from my own personal experience, I was based in the Gold Coast, and we actually have three hospitals in the system, um, which are all within a sort of half an hour drive of each other. Mm. But then you are required, as part of Queensland training, to do um, a rural or regional um, time for at least six months, if not 12 months. So I was sent um, for 12 months uh, down to Lismore, um, which is actually just on the other side of the border in New South Wales. Had a great time there, but it's it's certainly you know a two-hour drive south, um, so it involves... Uh, I moved to Lismore yeah, for the whole okay. year, really. And then other people in my sort of year were also uh, uh, sent to Rockhampton, and <laughs> Rockhampton is probably a... I think about a 10 to 12 hour drive oh, right. north okay. uh, so it's it's a flight yeah, um, well, really yeah. so it's about an hour and a bit flight and uh, it's it's because the the rural and regional hospitals do struggle to recruit so sure. there's an expectation okay. that the bigger city hospitals will send people out Fine. there and I know people from from uh, places like Sydney hospitals they're often sent long ways in inland you move for the entire year mm. but it sounds like you know generally I've had otherwise three years on the Gold Coast um, that it doesn't sound like we move as often um, mm. as perhaps here and it's nice staying in a department for you know two yeah, years at a time definitely. yeah in terms of the rural placements they're compulsory within your training uh, a lot of people say there's benefits from rotating um, hospitals as frequently as we do as of just getting experience of different places and um, how different departments do things. In terms of sort of the rural placements you do, 
do you find things are done differently or do, do you find that you know that experience is beneficial or do some people just think it's a bit pointless I think it is it is definitely worthwhile mm. in terms of clinical experience um, I think you can get overly institutionalized by staying at one hospital mm, yeah. hospital system um, and it was definitely useful to see anesthetics done in other centers and Whereas one department of that I worked in was you know, 80% TIVA. Mm. Uh, another hospital that I worked in was almost exclusively gas. Yeah. Um, but then another hospital that I worked in was very significantly regional um, heavy and had some of the leading regional experts mm. in the country, so that was great. And then I think just in terms of a resource setting as well, you the, the distances in Australia mean that you you may not have an ICU in in your hospital and the nearest one may be several hours away um, if not a flight away so uh, they the experience level of some of the um, more senior clinicians out there was often very impressive and they were able to deal with things that would certainly need multidisciplinary input in a tertiary hospital mm-hmm. um, so it was, it was good experience yeah, yeah. So, so who does the transfer from <laughs> rural hospital to a big city? Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Well, we have um, we're lucky to have a completely statewide retrieval system, yeah. um, and retrieval medicine is is a big thing in in uh, in Australia, and it's um, predominantly ED, ICU, and anaesthetics um, mm. clinicians who will do part-time retrieval medicine or full-time retrieval medicine as well and so they if you have someone a patient that that's critically unwell that needs retrieval to somewhere else you call up the state-based hotline Uh, they coordinate everything they give you you can link to a tertiary center with a video conferencing um, and clinicians at the tertiary center will give you immediate advice on um, on treatment and then they will coordinate bed allocations and everything else and get somebody out to you to pick up the patient. You can do retrieval terms in your anaesthetics training uh, and that's, that's, that's really good. And then they are often the, the ones who will respond to primary incidents on the road as well. So if you have a rural uh, motor vehicle accident, it may the distances are so massive that you will often never get an ambulance out there. So the first one's on the scene. Um, will often be a helicopter and a primary retrieval um, uh, person, so they're often the first ones on the okay. scene. Yeah. Okay. The next question you kind of touched upon uh, already previously in terms of the actual supervision levels you have uh, within your training. So you talked initially about sort of the initial six months um, where you're never left alone and you sort of gain basic competencies. Is that yeah? So we have something very similar called initial assessment of competence but we don't have a written exam you have a specific written exam at the end of that uh, as well as yep. assessments yep. yeah yeah that's right. it's a sort of yeah. small scale exam that's done sure. in the department oh, and okay. it's the um sort of administered by the supervisors of training oh, okay. and that sort of thing yeah. so it's not it's not like a primary exam or anything. Oh, no it's more of a would you say it's less stressful definitely, yeah, definitely yeah, less fine. stressful okay, yeah fine. yeah yeah okay and then in terms of the supervision levels we get so the expectation is all trainees on an anaesthetic list, um, even something on a solo list would have a supervising consultant. Is that the same in Australia, or do they supervise sort of two trainees and two theatres at once? What what are the sort of ratios like? Yeah, I think it's it's similar. Uh, you would on elective lists, you would generally um, if 
if you're uh, working as a registrar, there would always be a consultant rostered to that list as well. Uh, so that's elective during the daytime. On after-hours shifts, uh, you, depending on your level of training, there would be um, you might either be rostered or on call. And when you're in theatre, there would either there would usually be an on-call consultant available to you. Um, for specifically that theatre um, or for that in a larger hospital if there were several theatres operating then there would be one consultant supervising um, say the obstetric theatre and the general theatre overnight and they'd be on call Um, so they're within 30 minutes and it really depends on the complexity of the case and your level of training as to how comfortable the consultant feels about um, whether they would come in or uh, and supervise you directly in theatre or come into the tea room or stay off site I guess yeah okay. so yeah that sounds pretty similar to what we have here yeah. touching on the topic of exams um, obviously the primary exam for us is incredibly notorious in terms of in terms of difficulty and I suppose the amount of stress it just produces in us but if anything it sounds like your primary is if not is is as I guess notoriously difficult maybe even more so. Would you be able to just outline what what the structure is of the different parts? Is it like a written and then a viva, et cetera? What, what wakes up? Yep. Uh, yeah, it is notoriously difficult and uh, brings back traumatic memories. <laughs> it's, uh, so you need to you need to sit it um, and pass it before the end of your basic training, which is after uh, two, which is two years in. Yeah. And it is a written component, which is an MCQ paper, and then also a short answer question paper okay. as well. Both are equally feared, probably, but um, I know I found the short answer questions very difficult. Yeah. Fifteen um, questions in uh, 150 minutes, oh, so wow. about 10 minutes per yeah. question, and essentially essay format, wow. uh, where you respond to a longer, a more structured question, and then that is manually graded after that. Mm-hmm. So then, if you you need to achieve um, a passing mark in both and get to the cut-off to then be invited to the Viva Mm -hmm. section, which is about six to eight weeks later. Mm -hmm. And then the Viva um, section consists of essentially further questions in in an oral format around the same topics um, where you're quizzed um, by examiners at each station. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's the primary exam. That's probably the major hurdle for most people. The fellowship exam, you need to sit um, before the end of your your advanced training, so the next two years. And I should say, sorry, for the primary exam, I, most people recommend a year's study right, okay. for about a thousand hours, uh, is classically said. Um, and it is, it, I think it, it took me a year. Yep. for sure okay. yeah the fellowship exam is is uh, quite different and i think quite similar to yours in it's more, much more clinical and applied and but it's still the same format in that there's an mcq and then there's a short answer question paper as well mm-hmm. um, with the essay questions and then uh, once you uh, achieve a passing mark in that you get invited to the viva uh, again six to eight weeks later um, and in that viva there is uh, an anesthetic viva uh, and then there's a medical viva as okay. well, where the medical viva is, is questions based around essentially medical conditions okay. and their pathophysiology and management and diagnosis mm-hmm. and recognition and things. Whereas the anaesthetic viva is more 
um, classical anesthetic questions and cases mm-hmm. and things. Yeah. Your primary, I guess, is also sort of your basics. Well, if you call it basic sciences, like your physics, pharmacology, yep. and uh, yep. physiology. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly the same. Yeah. We use a lot of. Um, uh, there are quite a few FRCA textbooks that we oh, use really? and things. Oh, okay. So it's quite. Oh. I think it's quite similar yeah. content. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Too. Yeah. Right. I mean, you've spoken about this already in terms of sort of your on-call commitments um, and your rotor and things like that. Obviously, your training is shorter than our training. So ours is seven years um, and then yours and yours is five years. Mm-hmm. A lot of people uh, or a lot of trainees in the UK would say our training is too long. We, ha- we do too much, for example, out of hours intensive care cover, out of hours obstetric cover. Um, is sort of the two main complaints we have um, in terms of level of or amount of service provision we have to provide. Is that an issue in Aust- in Australia? For some, do you see a lot of complaints about service provision or out of hours cover, or, or do you feel like it's a reasonable amount you do? It's uh, I, th- I think overall it's probably a reasonable amount. We do we do have to do a minimum of three months in ICU as part of training, which I, th- I think to be honest is probably not enough. Okay. But yeah. most people have often done a year of ICU before getting on yeah, the training yeah, program, so it sort of makes up for it. Um, and you can actually accredit ICU time from previous in order to not oh, do really? the three okay. months um, while you're in ICU. So I think probably probably less from that perspective. And as a as an anaesthetics registrar um, overnight, I we wouldn't be involved in any ICU cases or patients or supervision or anything unless there was an ICU patient that needed to come to theatre or if there was a concerning airway in a patient or, or something like that. They've really set up their own ICU training and uh, have junior registrars and, and senior registrars there. There is still a heavy um, obstetric burden and it's, it's um, sig- mainly covered by registrars who do after hours epidurals and cases and things like that. People manage to get through it, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people would be very interested to to ask about sort of um, the intensive care cover because obviously we do, I would well we definitely do more than three months here, but particularly the relationship between anaesthetics and intensive care is quite complicated in the UK. It sounds like um, it. In terms of sample, us sort of cross covering intensive care, but that just doesn't seem to be the case in Australia. So they obviously have their own training pathway, own college is that yeah, yeah so completely yeah. own college yeah. yeah we yeah certainly in the hospitals that i've worked in I, I haven't had to cover icu it may be the case in smaller regional hospitals mm-hmm. overnight but haven't I haven't experienced that personally mm-hmm. um, and it's not the case in the big cities really um, but yeah, they have a, their own complete training pathway and, and senior registrars yeah. and junior registrars and things, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, anecdotally, um, a lot of my anaesthetic colleagues uh, are keen to make the move to Australia, whether temporarily or permanently. Do, do you have any uh, colleagues from the UK and what, what kind of roles do they tend to take up if working, for example, temporarily for a year? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, I have some great, um, some great British mates over there. Um, I, I don't have a uh, huge amount of knowledge on the um, international pathway in, but from the people that I know, if they've come over as, uh, say, a resident to do a year, often in ED, mm. it sounds like you, you, I don't think you can get onto the anaesthetics training program without 
permanent residency. So that then takes a while. And I think that then stops people coming as a registrar, I think. But it it can be it can be done. Uh, but I think the residency aspect is a barrier. Mm-hmm. Coming over as there are definitely people who come over and do fellowships. I think that's possibly the easiest aspect. Um, either in retrievals or or anesthetics as well. And then coming over as uh, a consultant, ANSCA has very um, clear accreditation pathways um, for recognising exams and prior experience and accreditation for consultants as well. I often hear it's it's quite difficult for some international graduates, whether from the UK or elsewhere, to take up a training position in Australia, whether it's anaesthetics or something else, and you talked about the need for residency. After you get residency, would you say this is the case? Do they sort of treat you slightly differently to, for example, uh, an Australian medical school graduate, or is, this, or is it all kind of the same? Um, I think it's, again, obviously I don't have personal experience, but I think it's once you have um, residency, yeah. everybody is essentially treated as, as mm. if you have citizenship. Um, yeah. So uh, you you go through the normal pathway and would apply to the um, training program to join in. I think there is there are pathways for getting exams recognised, but again, I'd have to I'd have to. Um, there's some there's some good links on Ansca's website mm-hmm. for that. Okay. Yeah. And then finally. I mean, Ben and I have been chatting throughout the conference, <laughs> mainly me picking his brain about what sounds like uh, incredible working conditions and pay in, in Australia. But from what you've learnt uh, in your time here, is there anything you think the Australian training system could learn from the UK training system? You don't have to say yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, is there, any, is there anything you, know, you, you think we do in the UK which, you know, which, which maybe could be good in Australia? Um. I think there are some benefits to working in the UK that from a population density and uh, as a numbers um, aspect gives you advantages over the Australian system. Some of the uh, fellowships that I've been looking at in, in the UK are just, just don't exist in Australia because we don't have the population density in order to support the number of quaternary hospitals that you have here and the subspecialty um, interests that you have here. Um, so it's, UK is quite a popular place for Australians to come for a fellowship year to try and improve their skills and bring skills back home. Mm-hmm. If we had the ability to, that is certainly uh, one of the things that I'd try and bring home. Sure. The other thing is um, the the setup of research and audit and the amount of trainee interest in in those things is very impressive um, and I think probably just a, as a result of the size of the NHS and the possibly ethics approvals processes and, and pre-existing research funding and research network setups um, is very impressive. I think in Australia we find it hard with distances between hospitals to even attend conferences you basically always need to fly somewhere in order to go to a conference uh, in order to meet people um, share ideas that can be tricky Um, and I think some of the networks that you have in the UK are very impressive and lead to very um, impressive uh, audits and, and research projects so that would be It'd be nice mm. to try and improve that in yeah. Australia. And then in terms of the fellowships you do, 
Um, so you talked about how usually after you complete the five years of training, a lot of people, or most people, do a year fellowship after that. I don't know about most people. Okay. Um, I'd say probably maybe 20%, okay. 25% yeah. would probably go and do another uh, fellowship somewhere. Mm. If you wanted to do, particularly if you wanted to do subspecialty mm-hmm. things like cardiac or sure. PEDS, you would, yeah. you would need to go and do um, uh, fellowships mm. somewhere, yeah. And is there flexibility to do fellowships within your training? Uh, for example, let's say within the five years, you you kind of wanted to diverge slightly and spend a year away from the training program. How is is that something which is common? As in, would you uh, be forced to give up your training post, or would they sort of let you take that year sort of break away? For example. Yeah, not it's not really common, and mm. it's um, not very easy to do. It's quite it is quite a regimented track once you're on. They 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 do in, try and support flexible working environments. I know people who've taken six months off to travel or uh, or locum or things yeah. like that. But it's it's not common to um, to go and do say a teaching fellowship job okay. or yeah. um, an education uh, fellowship job for a year and then come back. I think because they. The benefits of, in particular in Queensland, of this centralised scheme means that most people get all of their subspecialties done in the five-year period, um, and so they get cardiac and neuro and peds and everything done, which is great. But deviating out of that can then lead to delays and things. So it's most people just just sort of stay in the in the project. Okay. So yeah. And then once you've completed your training program, I imagine the expectation is you take up a job as a consultant within the department. Yep. And then obviously in the UK, we have quite a well-publicized shortage of consultants. Is that the same in Australia, for example? Is it relatively straightforward to expect to be able to get a consultant job at the end of your training? It does vary um, city to city and uh, versus rural areas. So yes, at the end of your five years of training, once you've done all your exams and everything, you are signed off um, as a FANSCA yeah. and you're able to practice um, completely independently. Most people, I would say, do try and get position in a public hospital um, as a consultant. And it, it's quite, it can be quite competitive these days okay. in, um, in major cities, although it does go through uh, lulls, um, lulls and highs. In the, in the more regional areas, it is uh, certainly a lot easier to get a consultant post. And then there is the uh, private healthcare system as well. So in Australia, I think uh, compared to the UK, there's a much larger private healthcare system. So even though everybody has a universal access to free healthcare through Medicare. A significant popula- portion of the population um, do elect to pay for private health insurance for various complex tax reasons um, and other wishes. Uh, and so there are a significant number of private hospitals in each city. Uh, some people do elect to go straight into private anaesthetics work, and you can either work independently or work as part of a group of anaesthetists who will have the administrative functions to do all your billing for you and that sort of thing. But I guess I should note that the there is a, a moratorium on overseas trained anaesthetists coming to Australia and they're unable to work in um, the private sector for 10 years. Oh, 10 um, years. Uh, until, uh, okay, that's very, that's very interesting. Yeah. With all the issues facing the NHS at the moment, private 
healthcare is becoming increasingly popular, maybe more out of necessity rather than choice, unfortunately. But the setup in Australia is very interesting to hear about. Uh, I certainly wouldn't say it's the solution to the uh, NHS's problems. The private healthcare system in Australia has a significant number of problems and uh, there's a lot more elderly people needing surgery than there are young people who don't need surgery paying into it. So it has significant funding issues and has a challenging future ahead. But I do think... I do think that it's a good mix um, of public and okay. private. It, it, I think it does take a significant burden from the public mm-hmm. healthcare system, um, whilst at the same time it maintains a completely universal healthcare system that's free at the point of access. Mm-hmm. So that's probably all we have time for with Ben. Uh, thank you again for coming all the way from Australia to join us here at Trainee Conference. I hope it's been a good... Uh, experience for you to see what we get up to. Uh, it's definitely been very enlightening for me to ask you about your training and your working conditions. So thank you very much, Ben, for joining us. Yeah, no worries, Alan. Thank you. Yeah, thanks uh, very much. I had a very warm welcome in Leeds, and um, everybody's been uh, giving me a good Yorkshire welcome. It's, <laughs> it's been very welcoming. Yeah. <laughs>